I think all entrepreneurs think they're creating a market because I get some funny looks whenever I talk to other CEOs and I say, oh, but we're creating a market. Right. And they give me a look as if to say, what, we're not? Market creation requires an awful lot of thought leadership. It is truly bringing a unique perspective and a unique offering to a set of users and a set of use cases that probably didn't know they needed it. You have to put an awful lot of sticks on that fire to get it going. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Nichols Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited today to have Tom Turner with us on Founder Real Talk. Tom's the CEO of BitSight, which is a cybersecurity company that GGV's actually invested in. We invested in 2016, and I've known Tom for about two and a half years. He's done an amazing job to grow BitSight, and um, you know, BitSight itself is a very scaled business. We'll talk more about that. And Tom recently raised a large round of financing, which is another topic we'll talk about. So, Tom, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thank you very much, Glenn. My first question for you is. Can you tell us a little bit about what BitSight does? Just that sort of elevator pitch. Sure. Uh, BitSight's a cybersecurity ratings company. And a non-technical analogy for what we do is to think about either Moody's or S&P as examples of organizations that rate other companies. Uh, We deliver a similar business proposition, except we measure the performance of those companies in cybersecurity. And so our customers can look at suppliers in their supply chain, vendors they may acquire or invest in, companies they might want to compare themselves to, and uh, as well as thinking about things like cyber insurance. Okay. Now, you're not a founder of this business. You're the CEO. So maybe to the extent you're familiar with why the founders decided to found this company, what was their spark, and why you got excited about working for it, it'd be really interesting to hear. Sure. Yes, I'm not a founder, but the founders of the company are the chief technology officer and the chief product officer, respectively. They founded the company seven years ago, and the problem statement they heard from the customers they talked to was this problem of information asymmetry, which exists in many ways and in many areas of doing business. And if you think about risk more generally, you think about uh, credit ratings, there's an information asymmetry that has to be solved before you make a business decision. Mm-hmm. That problem's pretty pressing in cybersecurity, both because of the dynamic nature of the environment, also because of the unwillingness of people and the uncomfortableness they have with sharing it, uh, sharing their performance. And also because the prior forms of assurance uh, were, while valuable, always handcuffed by the inability to scale, the inability to always understand the performance of a company you care about. So solving information asymmetry around cybersecurity performance, both at scale and continuously, and in an objective fashion were the problems that Stephen and Nagarjuna were trying to solve. 
Okay, and you obviously had lots of things you could have gone and done. What attracted you to the company? Well, two things. First and foremost, the first CEO of the company, Sean McConnell, and I have had a 19-year working relationship through this will be our third company. Um, mm-hmm. He's now the chairman of the company, yep. so he has a you know powerful influence on the decisions that I've made. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been successful together several times. But putting that aside, I got it. I'm not a founder, but uh, I've built my career in understanding sales and marketing and understanding the need for a raising and understanding what a raising can represent in the topic of cybersecurity is very intuitive and I got excited about it. And mostly I got excited about it because done right, it doesn't have to be really technical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can finally talk to business people about cybersecurity, which is a Huge opportunity. Okay, well, I want to get back to that and kind of your go-to-market, given that that's a characteristic of the company's product. But let's start with a question around what it's like to be the CEO of a business, fast-growth business, where the founders are obviously important and still, you know, very engaged in working at the company. Sometimes, what we see is sometimes if a founder is the CEO and a new CEO is coming in, founder might leave. Uh, that's not the case you guys have. You, 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 know, you have very active and engaged founders. What's it like to be the CEO of a company like that? Well, look, in my case, I'm very fortunate to have uh, two founders who continue to scale really well with the business. And uh, in addition to being you know, incredibly bright and entrepreneurial for having the idea, they're just good people. I didn't come into the company as the CEO, and I would say uh, when I joined the organization, I was probably perceived as a threat in the early days. But I think one of the things that I do well is working with people, and as I said, you know, both founders are incredibly good people and recognize where their skills can be complemented. So um, I think it's important not to have too big an ego, and hopefully in my case I don't have too big an ego, and certainly in the case of the founders, they want to do what's right for the company, and as long as you can communicate and make the right decision for the customer, you know, I found that it has actually been a great experience. Mm-hmm. Well, being on your board and having gotten to spend lots of time with the founders, Stephen and Nagarjuna, they're, I agree, they're great, great guys. But I'm sure you've had instances where you know you want to go left, and maybe you're not sure that the founders want to go left. Maybe maybe they openly want to go right, or they're not sure about going left. How do you manage those times when you, as CEO, you know, you have a job to do? But you have some founders who have a lot of moral authority in the company. Are there instances you can think of where, where there's been some disagreement? And if so, how have you dealt with those? Yeah, I think the instances of disagreement have been few and far between. But of course, they happen regardless of whether you're dealing with a founder or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what I think is always important is to keep the customer central to the problem that you're trying to solve. And then... Maybe I'm fortunate because we are a data company and we are in the business of measuring as part of the service that we deliver right. to organizations. So being able to keep conversations grounded in you know, performance metrics and what's the right thing for the business has usually been the way that we've all gotten to the right decision and in accord on that decision. Great. Okay, let's, let's shift gears. You know, your business is a direct sales business and a couple of years ago, we were already invested. You needed to make a change. You decided you needed to make a change to sales leadership. Obviously, a really big decision because the sales, you know, person running sales at a company like yours is a very important executive. And, you know, to the extent that person is not working out, it's got to be a big change in the organization to make that shift. So, what led you to make that decision? 
And you then played the role. You sat in as interim VP sales, which is not something you'd done before. Was that a good decision, do you think, as you were searching for a new VP sales for you to play that role? And tell us a little bit about that process. Sure. So I was brought up in Yorkshire in the, in the northeast of England, and we have a phrase there, and it is horses for courses. <laughs> um, and I think there are times in for all CEOs where changes have to be made, not forgetting the contributions of you know the people who made them before they left the company. But I think as we got to a certain scale, what I saw was we needed the next level of leadership, both in terms of, of scale of the number of people that were in, in sales, but also in the scale of of the business that those salespeople were engaging, and then in sophistication of the operating model that we had to put in place. And so not an easy decision, but a very important one because you know, salespeople, you know, they certainly live life on the sharp end and they have the ultimate accountability, uh, with probably the exception of the CEO in a company. So the decision for me to run sales in the meantime was both tactically necessary because rather than begin a search and then remove the, the VP of sales, I decided it was better, both for performance reasons, but also I think there was a there was a ripple effect where you know the morale of the team that was was generating our revenue was being affected, and I wanted to staunch that first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my early role in the company, I was very focused on sales and marketing, but probably marketing more than the sales because mm-hmm. I had a sales leader. I think that was the right area to focus because we were in market creation mode. But I also felt that I needed to get closer to sales, so I really would understand what would be the right makeup of a of a replacement candidate. So that's why I took over. Time will tell whether that was a, a good move or a bad move. I think it worked out well. It took a long time to find a, a replacement. Um, some of that has to do with the Boston market, where I think um, there are many great sales executives, but uh, somebody with a unique blend of enterprise field sales experience and velocity inside sales and channel engagement, you tend to find one or two of those skills, not all three. Right. Um, so it was about a nine-month process. So I was uh, quite done with running sales by the time <laughs> I, I replaced myself in that role. And it was important one that you know the board needed to be part of the you know the approval on as well as the other members of the executive team because chemistry is really important when you're doing any company. It's uniquely important when you are in market creation mode and doing things that there really isn't much of a compass for um, yeah. from other organizations. Yeah, and I want to talk about market creation yeah. uh, in a minute because that's definitely part of the story here. Yeah. But so as as you mentioned, being CEO is one of the Probably one of the toughest jobs you can have in a company, and maybe being VP sales is the other toughest job. So you decided you had to hold both of those at the same time. Do you think playing the role of VP sales or interim VP sales while you were CEO helped you figure out what you needed in a, a head of sales, so that when you made your next hire, you were you were better prepared to know what that person needed to look like? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I do come from the school of you know you should do as well as as tell, right? Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, I became a lot more attuned to, you know, not just the value proposition and the marketing around, you know, what we do today, but you know, the real world scenarios that our customers are in and also how to how to engage with that customer while they're on a buying journey and frankly we're on a selling journey, right? Those are two parallel paths that have to complement each other. And so I think I learned a lot from that and you know, we're still because this is something new, selling to a different buyer in some cases with a different value proposition. You know, really understanding what that should look like. I think it's important for the CEO to have that 
you know, that nuance. It's in my wheelhouse anyway, because I'm not technical. So as much as I love to dig into product meetings from time to time, you know, eventually they want to kick me out because I'm, you know, asking the wrong questions. Uh-huh. So I think it was very helpful. And I think it's helpful today because I always love to tell the salespeople, hey, I'm a CEO that can really read a pipeline. <laughs> and I think that helps actually support my VP of sales in the, in the things that he's doing across the organization. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you alluded earlier to the fact that you're doing market creation here. This is a new market. Security ratings, you guys have basically invented this market. You're leading the market. You do have some followers who are trying to compete unsuccessfully, I might add. But what is it like? To be in a business where you're having to create a market, and how do you contrast that from a you know being in a situation where maybe a market's already understood? Yeah, look, I think all entrepreneurs think they're creating a market because I get some funny looks whenever I talk to other CEOs and I say, "Oh, but we're creating a market," right. and they give me a look as if to say, "What? We're not." Um, so let me define it a little more. Okay, what I mean by creating a market is there's no budget category, there's no defined decision maker. There's no legacy approach that needed a better business model or uh, just a newer flavor of technology. It is truly bringing a unique perspective, a unique offering to uh, a set of users and a set of use cases that probably didn't know they needed it. So that's very different from other things that I've done, which have usually been like the crass term is a better mousetrap, but you know a better flavor of technology mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or a differentiated business model that's maybe more channel directed than you know than direct, for example, and it requires an awful lot of, I guess the non-technical term is socialization in the market. Um, you have to put an awful lot of sticks on that fire to get it going, and. You know, it actually forces you to try to understand your ideal customer profile a lot earlier than I think a company that goes into an existing market with you know a technology differentiation or uh, or a new business model. So, when looking for that ideal profile, like how does that manifest itself in your go-to-market? Do you have uh, certain segments or a certain qualification process that you've built up that you stick to? Religiously, or what, what does that look like? You know, it would be nice if it was just a simple matrix, you know, with only one axis to worry about. But right. the reality is, it's kind of a Rubik's cube because mm-hmm. yes, there are verticals that lend themselves to being earlier adopters in the, in certainly in the area of security and risk, and there are uh, geographical markets. But even with in companies. The title of the key role and the personality and what that company values are dimensions that you want to try to embed into your go-to-market as much as possible, so you don't leave it to the, you know, the creativity of of your sales team. And that's not a knock on salespeople. That's just a hard thing to ask them to to not really give them a recipe and your channel to not give them a recipe. So uh, understanding what a company's motivations are. How they think about success when they leverage technology to solve a problem, how they think about communication within the organization. I think those are things you have to think through because it hasn't been done by somebody else. Right. And it sounds like, you know, when you're creating a category, marketing spend and the decision about where to apply dollars can be pretty tricky because you might spend a whole bunch of money and get no return on it if you're not careful. But on the other hand, you definitely need to educate people on the fact that you exist and why you know your category is important, and they should create budget where they may not have had budget planned before. So, 
How do you walk that fine line? Well, clearly you've been looking at our balance sheet, Glenn. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, but it is a fine line because, particularly in cybersecurity, where there is so much hype, there are so many vendors, there are so many marketing vehicles available to, uh, you know, looking at it positively to educate the customer, looking at it negatively to drain the precious venture capital that we've raised. So it's about focus, but it absolutely is about market. You know, if you think about sort of marketing in a very simple sort of way, there's sort of three responsibilities. There's there's market creation, there is arming the sales force, mm-hmm. and there's lead generation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, if you're going into an existing market, you do have to do work on your brand, but it's not like you have to work really hard to establish yourself as long as you can attach your brand to the existing category. Market creation requires an awful lot of thought leadership. So that is press, analysts, you know, thought leaders within a market, thought leading companies within a market. And that does require a differentiated spend, but you also, you know, it also requires probably greater discipline in deciding, all right, what am I going to spend on and what am I not? Uh, so speaking of what you're going to spend on, you guys recently held a, a user event uh, yep. customer conference, which you, you called Bitsight Exchange. Tell us about your decision to do an event like that and how you'll gauge whether it was successful or not. Yeah, so look, I think um, Exchange is, is a, a unique event insofar as uh, we didn't bill it Today is a user event or user group. Okay, um, sorry about that. It, well, no, it was, a, but it was a forum where we were seeking to bring together two disparate yet related groups, right? The business leaders in an organization and and the senior leaders that think about security and risk. You know, because the industry didn't need another event, right? There are plenty of events uh, just of to events. talk about you know security. But I think what is has been necessary, and that's why Bitside even exists in the first place, is this need to be able to have a, a business lens on something that is incredibly important to an organization, but is now needs to be judged in business terms, not technical terms. And that's a shift. So Exchange for us was about doing a the first of a kind forum where we brought leaders together to talk about topics. They're actually not about Bitsight and its technology, but certainly about the areas in which we operate and spend a lot of time with customers. So, for example, chief risk officers, board members, CIOs who report to those board members, national security groups that are all thinking about what the various risks are and how to take IT security as a topic and make it something that can be looked at with a risk lens, which is ultimately a business decision. And you think Exchange was a success, and will you consider doing it again? If so, look, I'd say that um, you know, as a marketer, it would surprise you that I don't love events, right? Um, <laughs> but I had some good uh, good conscience on my board that encouraged us to take this step, and I would say the fact that we were able to get you know 150 senior people in New York to engage around the topics that we put out for the day. Frankly, the excitement that it generates inside of the company mm-hmm. uh, and the content that you know, can be leveraged with our customers and our partners and our employees, you know, I think it was a resounding success. So we look forward to doing it you know, next year too, bigger, better, maybe with some of the learnings that we've taken from this year. Excellent, excellent. Okay, I want to shift gears back to your go-to-market. We talked about replacing your head of sales and what that process was like. Looking at your business, you have some very large customers, some of the biggest companies in the world as your customers, um, so very much an enterprise sale. But at the same time, because of your model, you also have mid-market customers and smaller customers, uh, many of whom come to you because they are the vendors who are being raided 
by large companies and then realize that they themselves should know their own rating and maybe they have their own set of vendors they want to now start managing. So as a result, you have this interesting dichotomy, right? We have very large enterprise customers who you serve through a direct sales model, but you have to support and make sure they're successful like traditional enterprises and enterprise selling. At the same time, you've got mid-market, smaller customers who have a different, maybe different product needs and perhaps are less sophisticated and have other differences as well. What's that like? How do you manage the fact that you've got two kind of pretty distinct customer bases? I would say the customer bases are probably more distinct because of the way we approach them than the nature of the customers themselves, mm-hmm. which is, I think is an important distinction. Okay. And I would tell you we we began by engaging with sort of the classic enterprise sales model because frankly that's what we knew. And we also knew that the largest lighthouse organizations, independent of our product, which doesn't not, nothing about our product requires the classic enterprise tech sales engagement. But everything about those customers does. When you think about their size, their scale, the number of people in the organization, the way they make decisions. And so that's why we started with enterprise sales. And we've continued to continue to grow our enterprise sales team, again, more because of the way those organizations like to consume information about mm-hmm. the solutions they might want to leverage, mm-hmm. and also because of the people that we're trying to reach in those organizations, which are certainly not the developer communities. You know, We're always trying to reach higher and higher within an organization, and right. so there's an advantage that face-to-face engagement has there with the telephone. Now, having said that, I think over time we'll learn you know, what's the right mix of engagement for our customers as well as for us, our company. But as you pointed out, one of the core tenets of BitSize Business is the ecosystem that we're building for the value of our participants in our ecosystem has a value to us as a company, which is a network effect spread mm-hmm. of our ratings. And so large organizations are the you know, point of infection or are the hub around which many spokes rotate right. and um, we found that we could deploy a different a different go to market engagement for those kind of organizations and it's uh, more of a velocity based uh, sales and marketing engagement and you know to, just to give you a sense today probably 35% of our ARR comes from the inside team and the delta comes from the enterprise but that's equalizing over time. Okay. Um, so managing that, you know, requires the appropriate sales structure. Um, it also requires the appropriate thought around products. Are there capabilities that lend themselves more and packaging that lends itself more to early stage or middle market customers, early stage meaning just the maturity and the problem they're trying to solve. And then you know thought processes and marketing and channels about making sure that uh, we understand both of those functions for that customer segment too. Are the support models different for the two types of customers? Well, that's actually a good point, yes. So uh, when we think about customer support, the customer support isn't different, but customer success is, right? And that's a separate group within our company that is all about you know, onboarding, operationalizing the organizations. We tend to do that more by, frankly, customer spend with us. And customer spend is a pretty good proxy for the complexity of the deployment that they want to put in place. So you know, larger companies that spend more with BitSight get higher touch engagement from our customer success because their use case requires it. And then if we think about people who are consuming less from BitSight, 
you know, has a much lighter touch of customer success, almost more self-serve. And so mm. we've learned that. And we're still trying to figure, you know, we're still learning what are the right nuances to that. So there are actually some large customers who have very small deployments of, of BitSide initially, but those are high potential to grow. Right. By the same token, there are some medium-sized customers that have very large deployments of BitSide and, um, you know, are almost sort of uh, outliers. Interesting. So size of company doesn't necessarily correlate exactly with sophistication of user of BitSite. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you also have lots of customers around the globe, right? Um, we're actually recording this in China, and um, you've spent the last week visiting customers and prospects in Hong Kong and in Singapore, over in Australia, and you have you have a meaningful presence in Europe. What's that like, and what challenges does being so global? You're not a spring chicken as a company anymore. You know you're over 300 people now, and um, many, many tens of millions of, of ARR. But what does it mean to be global, and how much strain and stress does that add to your organization? You know, I think again, uh, I made the comment about being close to the customer. I think the biggest strain and stress that I observe when I travel is, you know, where we are um, because of the way we've resourced. You know, not as close to the customer as we are in our foundational markets mm-hmm. or the places we first started. So, mm-hmm. and there was an interesting, the, I mean, the event that we're at today, um, hosted by GGV, there was a great comment about enabling full stack offices in company divisions to to cater to a geography. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, what I observe, you know, when I haven't done that. That's where we find strain. So it's about making sure that we put the right investments so that the customer gets the same sort of engagement with Bitside as a company, regardless of whether they're twelve hours, you know, removed from our Eastern time zone or mm. whether they're right in that time mm. zone. So they don't feel like they're a uh, in a a market way away from headquarters. They feel like they're they're being serviced as if they were right, you know, right by you guys in Boston. Correct, somewhere. and probably all the more important because we're doing market creation. You know, a lot of our engagement with the customer is we're going to take you on this journey that yeah. um, you didn't think you needed to go on, and we're going to help you on this. And so, making sure that we give them the same feeling of comfort that we would give a investment bank on Wall Street, which who we've been dealing with for you know the last four or five years, right. is really important. Right. That must be challenging because having a full stack. Sort of available in every time zone, or you know, in every meaningful time zone around the world, in, in in large markets, is not easy, right? And you do want to centralize some functions. So, you know, any any tricks of the trade, or any any things you've encountered that that uh, are particularly vexing in this regard. Well, I think so. That's where look, n- n- not one size fits all. Not everybody, you know, because not all territory is the same. And and you know, and I tell this to you know our, our field team all this, all the time you know if you're in a partner led territory where you have great partners who are actively out helping you to build your business then you actually don't need the same marketing spend that you know another geography where you know we don't have partners working so i would say it's about looking at the support in aggregate and then it's about you know Having the right strategy to open up the territory, and sometimes we've done things tactically and looked at it and realized, oh, you know, there's a better way to do this. And, you know, next time we go into a territory, we will we'll make the deployment pod look like this, right? Mm. So, um, so yeah, it can't be the same for everybody, uh, and you know, you have to pick your points where you want to be successful. So, speaking of successful, you raised the financing round not too long ago, significant in size, sixty-five million dollars, led by Warburg Pincus. 
What did you learn about through that process in terms of raising a round for you know a company that's rapidly scaling and raising a, a round of that significance in terms of size? Lots of lessons, uh, lots of really good lessons. Uh, I think, as I told you, uh, you know, next time I do this, I'm gonna be awesome at it. <laughs> <laughs> so no, we had a, we had a, uh, we're delighted with the outcome. We ended up with a, a you know a wonderful lead investor and great participation from our existing investors. So the key things that I learned were. Actually, as you go through different stages of, of a company and therefore requirements of what your capital is going to look like, you know the kind of companies that were ideal for the B and the C are uh, turned out to not be the front runners for for leading the D. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the investors that our current investors introduced us to, who were interested, but actually, what I realized. In the rearview mirror was didn't have the vision for what we were trying to do in the same way that, for example, you did the GGV in our mm-hmm. C round, mm-hmm. um, and I was surprised by the sort of organizations that did. You know, we ended up with our finalists being much larger growth investment arms of large private equity companies who, frankly, had a a bigger vision. A vision that aligned with ours for yeah. what our company could do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first lesson that I learned was probably you know do this again. I will sit down and think about you know what's their investment thesis like mm. and uh, and what do they value yeah. at, at this stage in a company. Um, so one key like qualifier, kind of like a sales process, right? You want to you want to make sure exactly. you've got qualification. Is hey, does the the investor on the other side of the table share my vision for where I want to take the company? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. And the other thing I learned too is that you know, and it's it's actually a, a valuable lesson is the great thing about being in a SaaS company. I think both for an operator like me as well as investors is the ability to look at metrics and to understand the fundamentals of the business. That, that didn't really exist in the old, yeah. um, to the same extent in the old perpetual software world. Sure. Um, and so, you know, understanding your metrics and where you're going, what you do well and what you don't, I think was something that I became much better at, and that will serve me well in the going forward. Yeah. Um, but it also can lend itself to being a simple math exercise for the investor yeah. that's looking at you. And yeah. so, not unlike a good enterprise sales process, um, you know, if you're only engaging around metrics with the uh, with the fresh out of Dartmouth, um, you know, <laughs> MBA person, there's yeah, going to be a different way to value and look at the company than the more seasoned investor who mm. absolutely has to have the fundamentals, but is looking for the intangibles. Got too. it. Got it. Really, those are those are great points. Okay, Tom, we're at that point in the episode where you're on the hot seat. We're going to ask a couple of rapid fire questions. Can I get a beer before? <laughs> Beers will be after. Um, just say the first thing that pops into your head, and and I'll give you about a minute for each. Okay. First question for you is: talk about a favorite book or piece of content that you enjoy reading that you think has helped you as a, as a CEO, and you think would be useful to other other folks listening who are you know company leaders or founders. I'm partial to the speeches of Winston Churchill, which are available in multiple book forms. And here's the reason why. Um, I think in, in the role that I'm in and the mission that we're on at BitSight, it's important that there be uh, a call to arms mm-hmm. uh, and to motivate. And in times where you, you actually don't have you know, you don't have the greatest course charted for you by somebody else. So I love that, and I think um, I think that's helpful communicating to the people that need it most, which are people facing the customer, the sales team, 
you know, young people in an organization who, who frankly look for inspiration. So um, I find it very helpful, and okay, I, I think the great. context is really good, too. I have to dust off my copy of The Last Lion, which uh, is, <laughs> a, right. is a great biography <laughs> yes. on him, but very yeah. long book that I yeah. read many years ago. Okay, tell us uh, an, an entrepreneur or founder or, or you know, business exec that you respect and why. You know, Jay Shri Ulal is um, uh, a woman that I worked for uh, for a fairly brief amount of time at Cisco, but she's gone on and you know, she was very successful at Crescendo coming into mm-hmm. Cisco and has gone on to be the successful CEO of Arista Networks. Yep. And I, I was impressed with her in a world of men in, in the way that she led. Uh, she was uh, uniquely good at getting to the heart of the topic and she didn't take herself too seriously, right? She uh, she appealed really well, I think, to a very broad set of, mm. uh, and so that's always stuck with me. Even though I worked with her briefly, I worked for her really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I uh, have a lot of time for what I remember about Jay Shree at, Great. Uh, at Cisco. Okay, cool. All right, last one for you. What's something you believe that you think others generally don't believe? Something controversial. I tend to believe that good people win out. I don't know if that's controversial. Yeah, that, I'd say that's not a generally held belief. Yeah, and I think uh, you have to have the power of you know understanding who's a good person and who's not. You know, I, th- I think pra- you know being pragmatic is important, but it's just a personal philosophy. And I've been fortunate enough to be around organizations that have been successful, that are successful because of of the people and the of what's inside them, and not because of a a ruthless desire to be successful at all costs. Okay. Well, as one of your board members, I'm glad to hear you say that that uh, you believe good people can succeed because I know you are a very good person. Uh, it's been great to talk to you on Founder Real Talk. Thanks for this episode. I think our uh, listeners are really going to love it. Lots of good stuff in here and, and I really appreciate you spending the time. Thanks, Glenn. Happy to do it. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>